to the Red Light Report. Your number one source for all things red light therapy. Where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. Today's interview, we're going to have a little gut check with Dr. Mary Pardee, and she is a naturopathic medical doctor and a certified functional medicine doctor who specializes in integrative gastroenterology and hormone balancing in Los Angeles, California. She is the founder of Modern Med, a telemedicine and virtual wellness company that provides medical and health services to clients from the comfort of their homes. For those who cannot work one-on-one with a modern med practitioner, Dr. Mary also created a gut health course that dives into the most common gut-related complaints and natural solutions to start healing. And we'll get into that gut course shortly, but Dr. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking time out of your day. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Mike. My pleasure. Let's just get started with your, your kind of your origin story. How did you get into the gut health lane? What made you want to become a gut health expert and then found Modern Med? I, as a young girl, had gut issues. And so it was my own personal healing journey that brought me to gut health, which I think is pretty common in the integrative natural health space is that we come here mostly because of our own journeys and that we tried conventional medicine and we tried other things and they didn't work for us. And so that was definitely the case for me. I was diagnosed with IBS at a really young age and went through the full conventional model, tried a lot of different medications and nothing really worked. I was really disappointed in terms of, I finally got to a doctor and he looked at my chart and you know, it was super thick at that point. I had done every test. I had seen specialists. I tried everything that they had to offer. And he looked at me and he was just like, listen, you've tried it all. This isn't life-threatening. You're just going to have to live with it. It was really disheartening that that was the message that they were readily putting out. And I then started on my own journey of, I don't believe that. I feel like I can get better. There's got to be another thing that I can do, something else I can try, a different avenue. And so that brought me to naturopathic medicine. I found a naturopathic doctor who I worked with, and I was obsessed with her knowledge base and how she explained things to me and her bedside manner and just the amount of time she spent with me. It felt like a totally different experience. And so that's where I set out and said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an naturopathic doctor. I'm going to become the doctor that I didn't have um, as that young girl. And so that's where it's brought me in terms of really specializing in integrative solutions to gastrointestinal complaints. Majority of my patients have IBS, which makes sense because I've been there. I've done that. I'm also specializing now in mental health because those are so closely linked. You can't really treat IBS without treating mental health. That's where I am today. That's an empowering story to hear. Obviously, that you went through the struggles that you did with allopathic conventional medicine, and you decided to become the doctor that you, you weren't able to have yourself at that early age. So that's pretty cool. And like Hippocrates said, 2,500 years ago or so, all disease starts in the gut. So truly treating the root cause is your expertise and your profession. So that's pretty darn cool. And then like you alluded to the gut brain axis, which we'll get into here soon. How common, how rampant are gut conditions? Can you say that most people have it, even if they don't have the telltale signs, just given the modern lifestyle that we live these days? 
Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because some integrative practitioners will always treat the gut. And so I'm I'm a little bit more on the conservative side when it comes to that. However, about 20% of the population has IBS. And I think it's probably more than that. And it just goes undiagnosed because you have a lot of people that just say, I'm just going to deal with it. It's not that bad. And so I think a lot of people do. And then you add in other functional GI issues, um, things like dyspepsia, you know, indigestion or reflux, you know, they're really, really common. Um, And there's a good reason that gut issues are common. And we talk about the nervous system and brain health when we talk about that. they're, They're really intimately linked. And I think that eating the standard American diet and drinking alcohol and putting our body under the amount of stress that we do with the workload that a lot of us take on and just like the current state of affairs in the world right now, that all is going to affect your gut health. So if you have a lot of inflammation, if you're consuming inflammatory foods all the time, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not sleeping, it can definitely affect your gut health. And so a lot of people do have gut issues that we want to look at. And sometimes people have skin issues that, you know, we actually want to look at the diet and see if we can change that, which then helps the gut, which then helps the skin too. So it's not always, okay, you have diarrhea, you have a gut issue, but we're looking at psoriasis, eczema. We're looking at other things that present differently and targeting the gut for treatment. Yeah, that's a a lot of good points. I mean, very multifactorial. It's not just the food. It's not just stress. It's not just the fact that you got the bug or something like you mentioned. It's, It's a host of issues potentially. With that being said, when a patient comes to you, how do you parse or tease out what is the root cause or root cause is? Yeah, great question. And I've pivoted my practice in the last few years, but currently what I do with somebody when they when they first come in is I spend almost an hour and a half with this person. And the reason behind that is I'm getting their story. I'm really collecting their timeline in functional medicine, we call it, in terms of what happened throughout your entire life to land you here today talking to me and wanting to fix this. And that's one of the questions I ask is, why are you here today? Like, why today and not last month? Like, why today and not two years ago? And there's always a reason for that. There's been um, a crisis. They've, they've reached the point of discomfort that they're not willing to go any longer. Or they've gone through the conventional medical model and they want something different. Um, but I'm getting that story from them. I'm really being an investigator and saying, you know, what was your childhood like? Like, we really start from childhood, from birth to present day because there's clues along the way all of the time. I just posted a really beautiful visual that I found from a research article on Instagram. And it's saying like the development of IBS, like how does this actually happen? Well, it happens because of genetics, you know, things that you're born with. And then it happens from early childhood trauma, childhood stress, and then psychological stress through adulthood, and then current anxiety that is around the actual condition itself. But basically the point is, is that our entire life is why we are here today when we talk about chronic disease. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a single trigger most of the time. People come to me because they're looking for that one thing usually. Like what's the one lab test that shows I have this and we just fix that and then it's gone. And unfortunately, that's not usually the case. It's usually we have to address diet. We have to address stress. We have to address sunlight exposure. We have to address joy. Like there's so many different components to it, but that's what I do is just get that story. And then we go from there. Take it from there. Gotcha. What are the most common misconceptions about gut health or common misconceptions about treating the gut microbiome? Yeah. 
I get a lot of patients that come in with mental health things, anxiety, depression, bipolar, you know, whatever it is, and they want to treat their gut because they've heard that that is likely a contributing factor. They communicate it as if they treat their gut, they think that that mental health is going to go away. And it's my job to educate that it's bi-directional. This is a bi-directional system where one affects the other and the other affects the other just as much. And so, yes, of course, we're going to address your gut, but we also have to address the mind. We have to address the mindset. We have to address mental health. Because if you just treat the gut, it's unlikely that a mental health condition will just disappear. We have to also take responsibility and also say that there's something else at play here, likely. And so I think that's just like the buildup that the gut microbiome has received over the last decade, because all of this research has come out about this gut microbiome, this ecosystem that we have in our intestines. And it's fascinating. And we're still learning about it and uncovering facts. And so I don't want to downplay that. But also, you can't say that the gut microbiome, if we figure it out, will fix everything. We're always looking for a panacea. It does not exist. I'd be shocked if we find it one day. And so it's really just balancing people out in terms of their expectations and saying your gut health is so important. And so is your mental health. And so is exercise. And so is all of this all together. Gotcha. That makes sense. And with you being such an expert in the area, I think it would behoove the audience to hear from you. What do you do, whether it's on a daily or weekly or just what do you put into your regimen to make sure that your gut health is on point and that you don't let that go astray? Yeah. So for me personally, I take one supplement at this point, which is magnesium. And so I take that at night for both sleep, but also my gut health. I have a more sluggish gut, like if I tend towards anything. And so magnesium helps with that, but I also will help that along in terms of targeting with specific herbs, spices, and teas. And so one of the things that I'm passionate about is that I think Americans underutilize herbs and spices. If you look at other cultures, They are adding tons of flavors, tons of spices, tons of herbs to their food, and it's therapeutic. And you can use these foods as medicine on a daily basis. So for me, ginger is like a staple. I drink ginger tea. I add ginger to my food. And if I'm feeling like things aren't moving, I'll take ginger capsules as well. And then things like turmeric, bitter vegetables are another thing that I make sure I include in my daily regimen, things like arugula, endive. Bitters help stimulate the digestive process. And so they're an age-old remedy for GI issues because they help to start the digestive process in the mouth. So a bitter taste helps your body start to produce stomach acid and digestive enzymes so that you can fully digest your meal. The other thing is mindfulness. And I should probably mention this first because I think it's one of the most important things. But when I sit down with a meal, I really try, and I'm not perfect, I will totally admit that. (laughs) Um, I have the times when I'm working and I'm eating still, but when I'm focusing on my gut health, when I sit down with a meal, I am fully looking at it, smelling it, taking it in so that my body can start to process it. I've seen people with a history, you know, of 10 plus years GI issues that they just change the way that they eat, meaning eating more mindfully. And a lot of their symptoms disappear. And it makes total sense. You know, if you're in the car on the 405 in LA and trying to eat lunch at the same time, 
your brain is not telling your gut it's time for a meal. It's time for survival on the 405. Like you're just trying to get from point A to point B. And so you're not going to produce digestive enzymes at the same amount. You're not going to have the same motility to make sure everything's moving through. And so no wonder you're going to have reflux or you're going to have discomfort after you eat or bloating because things are sitting there. So really the way in which we eat is equally important. And then walking. I think walking is like one of my favorite things for my personal gut health. It keeps me regular, but also keeps my nervous system in check, calms me down, and it helps with regulating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest nervous system. So walking is one of my favorite tools for gut health. 10,000 steps per day minimum is really what I'm telling people and increasing from there and seeing how you feel. Interesting. Yeah. I love the mindfulness. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. And like you, I'm not always the best at doing that, but I'm trying to incorporate it much more often and much more frequently with my eating. But the walking for gut health is kind of a different one and a unique one. I mean, you hear just for being active for exercise and those purposes, but for gut health, and it makes sense because if you have a postprandial walk, that'll help with your blood glucose levels and all that. So I guess I'm curious with you, are you pretty ardent about going out on walks after a meal or is it just for you consistently throughout the day getting those steps in or both? Consistently throughout the day. So, you know, I keep an eye on my blood sugar and make sure that I'm not ever going to get into the pre-diabetic range, but I think it, it can really help if you do postprandial walks for blood sugar regulation, if that's my concern and preventatively, of course, I have a busy schedule. And so I walk when I can walk. And so I have a walking treadmill desk at work. And so between patients, I'll get on there to do my chart notes. At lunch, I'll, I'll take a walk a lot of the times. In the morning, I'm always taking either a walk or I'm going for a run. And then I love ending my day with a walk too. But it's really more about just doing what you can do when you have the time and not being super regimented on. If it's not after I eat, I'm not going to walk. You know, it's just like get it in whenever you can get it in. If it's after a meal, amazing. You get added benefits from that for sure. Totally. And with you utilizing telemedicine, was that brought on by the whole COVID-19 thing or were you doing telemedicine before that even? We, we started out as a telemedicine company. We were one of the first naturopathic telemedicine, sole telemedicine companies where we were just doing telemedicine. And that was out of my desire to design my life, to be totally honest. I wanted to be able to work remotely. I wanted flexibility. It, we, we totally shifted things when the pandemic happened in that it was great. We were ready for it. So we were able to continue to help our patients. And I realized the necessity of having an in-person office when the pandemic hit for mental health reasons. And so I actually got an office during the pandemic when everybody was ditching their offices to go telemedicine. It was further in, you know, it was like at the very beginning of 2021 is where I really said, we're going to have an in-person office. Cause I really think now more than ever, people need to be in person with people. And especially as a doctor, it's much, it's a totally different thing when I can be sitting next to a person, when I can, you know, get my hands on them, do physical exam. We always share a cup of tea that I designed for their gut health or mental health or whatever they're there for. Um, and so like that ceremonial process of really sitting and being mindful with somebody is really important to me now. So I, I did the opposite and I flip-flopped and said, we're going, we're going in person once the pandemic hit. What a paradox. That's kind of funny. But like like you explained, it makes total sense. When 
when isolation had been around for so long, you're actually getting an office and wanting to bring people in and, and remove that, you know, isolation barrier. So smart thinking on your end. You know, let's talk about some low hanging fruit here, pun somewhat intended, but when it comes to diet, what are some of the biggest culprits that are like non-negotiables someone has to get rid of if they're consuming that on a consistent basis? And then what are some other ones that are uh, common culprits? Yeah, I love that question. Um, the most obvious one for gut health is going to be alcohol. So that is huge. So alcohol is a direct irritant to the GI tract. Um, you know this, if you have like a little cut on your skin, you pour alcohol on it, it hurts. <laughs> and so alcohol does not help the GI system at all. It can make you feel more calm. And so some people will actually self-treat their IBS with alcohol because it calms down the nervous system. So it gives us a little hint in that, okay, anxiety is really driving some of your GI issues. And then we can say, what's an alternative? How else can we cope besides using alcohol as the main substance? Other things are, you know, nuts and nut butters are something that people don't think about because they're health foods, especially in the wave of keto and paleo and all these things. A lot of people are going to nut, nut butters, nut bars. Those can be really disruptive to people's GI systems that are more sensitive. And it depends on the quantity there, where if you have like a tablespoon throughout the day, you're probably fine. And if you have four tablespoons in a smoothie, you may really experience a lot of bloating and discomfort because you're not used to eating that much or you're not designed to eat that much. You know, we were designed to go find and forage nuts, but enough to make four tablespoons of nut butter would have taken a really long time. So that's one thing that surprises people is that we'll usually take out nuts and nut butters to help people in the healing process. Coffee is another one. This can go one way or another. Coffee for reflux can wreak havoc, but there's health benefits to coffee too. So I'm, I'm never in a dogma. I want people to take it out, see how they feel, put it back in, and then we'll make decisions based off of that. I deal with a lot of people that have sensitive nervous systems and, and coffee can sometimes tip them over the edge with that. Another one that people don't think of is raw vegetables. So raw vegetables are great for a lot of people. If you have GI issues, they may be aggravating you. And so the analogy I'll use with my patients is we want to treat your GI system like a baby's. You would never give a baby raw broccoli. You would give it pureed, mushy, kind of bland foods, well-cooked. And so when we're healing the gut, we want to do exactly that. It does not mean that raw vegetables are bad for you by any means, but if you're in the category of really wanting to heal your gut and you're in a tough spot, then choosing cooked foods, soups, stews, purees can be really, really helpful. Sweeteners, especially artificial sweeteners, but you know, your sugar alcohols can be really troublesome on the GI tract too. Some people that eat a ton of foods with sugar alcohols will notice that when they stop them, bloating goes away. That's another big one. Carbonated beverages. Mm. Soda water, it's not bad for you. You know, it's just water and it's a great way to get in something that feels like a treat without the sugar. Um, but you're drinking air. And so if you're drinking air and you're bloated, then the first thing is stop drinking the air and see how you go. That can be a really big game changer too. And a lot of this is volume dependent. doesn't mean you can never have a soda water again in your life. It's just being aware that if you're drinking two liters of soda water a day, it may be causing gas and bloating. Thanks. So that's a lot of the good stuff <laughs> that affects the gut. The first one, alcohol, 
So it's like in a lot of, you know, biohacking longevity circles, you know, having a glass of wine a day is considered promoting health or promoting longevity. I mean, of course, it's not so, you know, black and white, but you're saying that it is an irritant to the gut, even if you have a quote unquote healthy gut, or is this more for those who are struggling with gut health or both? Yeah, and we don't know entirely yet if the glass of wine a night is due to the social aspect or the substance mm-hmm. itself. And so I don't believe there's really a healthy amount of alcohol. I'm in the camp of moderation, so I still drink. I'll have a glass of wine once in a while, but I don't make sure I have one every night for my health. Like I, that's not the mentality. It's more of a treat. It's more of something that I want to celebrate with somebody or share a moment with somebody. I don't think alcohol promotes health. And so I think we can switch the paradigm to saying that, sure, it's something that we could have as a healthy part of our life because it's moderation. Um, But by no means would I ever prescribe, make sure you have your glass of wine every night to get your gut health in check. I don't think it's going to promote anything. I think quite the opposite. It has some polyphenols in it, especially the red wine and polyphenols definitely help gut health, but you can get way more bang for your buck if you're getting polyphenols from fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, other things. Gotcha. No, that's a good perspective. Alcohol doesn't promote health, but like you said, in times where celebratory, positive environment makes you happy, then sure, go for it. Just don't go overboard. Uh, Moderation is key, of course. And so on the flip side of the culprits, what are some of the top gut nourishing compounds or foods that people can consume, um, whether they're looking to, you know, begin their gut health journey or, you know, just, just, uh, uh, mitigate potential gut issues. And, and on top of that are prebiotics and probiotic supplements, like a mainstay on a consistent basis. I know you said you only take one supplement, I believe, or is that more so in a medicinal sense where there's a time and place to use them, but just not all the time. I'm just curious on your perspective. Okay. I'm going to answer that one first and then I'll go to the other one. I've kind of like spilled the beans on the other one in terms of I've let most of them go throughout this, but um, in terms of the prebiotics and probiotics, you hit the nail on the head. So with supplements, I'm using them as a therapy. And so there are some supplements that I think are anti-aging, longevity promoting, you know, sometimes I'll recommend resveratrol or lion's mane, whatever. So there are some that I'm like, yeah, I think these are good mainstays for your daily practice. But when it comes to gut health, I want to get somebody to the point where they don't need anything anymore. We don't have them on five things for the rest of their life to maintain. That's not a solution in my mind. You know, for me, I feel really good about taking magnesium at night. Like, I don't think I need to figure out not how to do that. (laughs) But I don't think that probiotics need to be taken on a daily basis for the general public just for maintenance. So I think of probiotics like a key with a lock, meaning that they are very specific. And so if you have constipation, if you have diarrhea, if you have bloating, you may get three different probiotics based on each of those conditions. Um, If you're looking to target immune health, you know, I did a talk about this. There's specific probiotics that help with natural killer cells. There's specific probiotics that can maybe help with anxiety. So you want to be just as targeted as you would a prescription medication as you would with a probiotic. And ideally, you know, you're not on something long-term just for maintenance. There's a couple exceptions like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and colitis. We don't have a cure for those yet. And so sometimes people with ulcerative colitis, I will keep on a probiotic forever. 
or for long term. They're doing something specific there. But ideally, I don't have people say, if you know, if you have no issues, do you need a probiotic? No, I don't think that you do. Prebiotics, we get through our food a lot of the times. So Jerusalem artichokes, onions, a lot of these foods have prebiotic fibers in them. So through the diet, yes, I think it's really important to get all of these things in because you're going to be feeding your good microbes. So to clarify too, a prebiotic is something that is a fuel source for your bacteria. So prebiotics are things like fibers that aren't digested by us, but our microbes digest them. And we can really utilize them in supplement form as well to say, we're going to give you some prebiotics to help feed the good bacteria. And I love doing that because it's a way that we can actually start to shift the microbiome. Probiotics don't actually shift the microbiome by themselves. They're just transient passengers that pass through and give you good effects when they're there. But when you stop a probiotic, the effects likely stop too. So prebiotics can help us remold or kind of transform the gut microbiome that's there by feeding the good guys. You can definitely overdo prebiotics as well, and they can cause a lot of bloating if you go way too high on them. So that's my answer for that one. I can dive into the next one. Did that cover it? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. And so for the things that promote gut health, we talked about some of them, but bitter vegetables are huge, underutilized vegetables in general. You're looking at six to nine cups of vegetables per day is my recommendation. So that's like half of your plate should be vegetables in the form of non-starchy vegetables. And then starches are another great source. Resistant starches add a different element too. And a resistant starch would be something that, for instance, if you cook a sweet potato and you put it in the fridge, then you take it back out and heat it again. It now has resistant starches that can affect your metabolism differently, can be beneficial for just how your blood sugar is regulating, but also for your microbiome. So three quarters of your plate being vegetables is really important. And then taking out the sugars and really going more towards a whole foods diet in general is really beneficial for the microbiome. Know your spices and how you react to them. So you can really tailor this. And I talked about like how I consume ginger because I have more of a sluggish GI system. Also spices helps speed up the GI tract. If you're on the other side and you're more prone to too fast and looser stools, peppermint can help slow things down, but also helps calm the GI system. It's great for nausea too. So really just knowing which spices are going to be good for you and using those to your benefit. Fiber in general, you want to make sure that you're getting enough fiber. So our ancestors, there's some data that they were getting about 50 to maybe 100 grams of fiber per day. If you take somebody off the street and say you're going to eat 100 grams of fiber today, they're not going to feel that good. And so you want to go slow as you increase these things and know what your range is. So 50 grams may be always way too much for you. But the RDA, you know, we're looking at we want to get above 25 grams of fiber per day and making sure that we're eating things that have fiber in them as the main source and not relying on fiber supplements. So this is going to be your plant foods. Gotcha. That, that's a good answer. Uh, well-rounded answer. And so digging a little deeper into the diet side of things, I guess I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people are, what's the scuttlebutt on gluten and lectins? Because they've both gotten a, a horrendous rap, maybe rightfully so. I'd love to hear from you. Should we be extremely afraid of them as it relates to the gut? And I guess I'll have some follow-up questions after after you expound on that. 
Yeah, we shouldn't be extremely afraid of anything. I think that's actually a contributor to gut health is the fear. And we see this a lot in functional medicine and naturopathic medicine is that people have read so many blogs and they've gone down so many rabbit holes and podcasts and whatever, is that they're scared of everything. They think that they shouldn't be eating anything. And they come to me and they're eating like four foods. They're eating like chicken, maybe like sweet potatoes and berries. And I'm like, this is not healthy for your gut. Like I should have mentioned that diversity is king for the gut. So a diverse diet where you're rotating your vegetables and you're rotating the foods you're eating helps your gut microbiome so much because it helps promote diversity in the gut microbiome. And with all the research that we have so far, diversity is one of the biggest driving factors for gut health. That being an aside, where was, what was I talking about before? Uh, gluten and, and uh, lectins, like yeah, what do you think we should be afraid of or not? Yeah, so I don't think we should be afraid of them. What I do suggest, which we're doing you know, with a big group of people in the coming future, is we're taking them through uh, elimination diets. This is how I start most of my patients off if they haven't done it. And even if they have, I have a specific gut health elimination diet. And so we take out gluten in that elimination diet. We also take out white potatoes, which are high in lectins. You can be more specific, but we can't take out everything with a lectin in it because that's virtually every vegetable. And so I think that they can be problematic in high amounts for some people. We choose to just start with white potatoes because I've seen through my clinical practice that restrictive dieting and orthorexia are way more of an issue than lectins are. So I just really hedge everything with caution there. But lectins can be inflammatory for some people. They can contribute to IBS symptoms in some people. And so I think it's worth taking out white potatoes and maybe a few other things for at least 30 days. See how you do. Same with gluten. We take it out for at least 30 days. Some people where I'm like, I'm pretty sure it is gluten. 90 days is really the standard there. But I think it's equally important if you're going to take it out to put it back in. Gluten is one where you can have a totally healthy diet and not eat gluten. Like I don't think everybody needs bread and pasta to have a healthy diet by any means. But take it out and put it back in and see how you feel. You know, if you're not diagnosed with celiac disease, and, you know, we're not really highly suspecting a gluten sensitivity, then I really think it's important for people to be able to eat the most diverse diet as possible. And so that's how I do it is just trial and error in terms of the gold standard is an elimination diet. I'm not a huge fan of food sensitivity tests. I think they promote restrictive eating. They promote orthorexia. They're not that useful in my practice. I'll use them once in a while, but it's not a mainstay. I much prefer an elimination diet and trusting your body and how you feel in it, which is something we talk about. It's like you need to start trusting your body. You need to start getting in tune with your body. You need to start listening to it. And just because a lab test tells you something, if the lab test doesn't have a ton of research behind it, then you want to listen to your body first and foremost. That's a good point. Becoming more intuitive with your body versus relying on Dr. Google or otherwise, right? So that's interesting. So as a person, and I haven't done this yet, I was kind of considering it, but you don't think it would be beneficial for like, let's say me to get a food sensitivity test just to make sure I'm not eating certain foods. You're saying that could be kind of the wrong path to go down. Yeah, I do. I, I strongly think it's the wrong path to go down, actually. Um, and I might change my mind. I change my mind on things all the time. But this has been pretty still in terms of like my beliefs for the last few years is that 
I've seen more harm than good with them. And there are exceptions. There are people where we've tried a lot and I'm saying, okay, let's do the food sensitivity test because I want to make sure we're not missing anything. And then when we get the results back, we read it from the lens of let's make sure that if a food sensitivity test comes back and it is positive, meaning you are sensitive to everything that you're currently eating, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you have a leaky or increased intestinal permeability. So do not think that removing those foods for the rest of your life is the solution. It's healing your gut lining. It's healing the intestinal permeability that's there so that you can tolerate a lot more foods in the future. So it's really important that you read these tests correctly as well. Um, If it comes back and you're sensitive to one thing, it's like you're sensitive to white potatoes, then great. Let's take them out and see how you feel because you could live the rest of your life without white potatoes or just know that if you're going to have white potatoes, you're going to you know, feel yucky afterwards. But if it's telling you to eliminate tons of foods, then there's something else going on there and you want to make sure you go down that rabbit hole to discover it. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Are you a proponent of sourdough bread or are you kind of no bread or stay off bread? Or what's your take on that? Yeah, well, sourdough is fermented and so it has usually very low levels of gluten in it and people tend to do better on it if they have GI issues. I'm totally fine with people consuming bread. I think it's in moderation, like everything. And that just comes to carbohydrate tolerance. Honestly, it's not bread specifically. We do take gluten out, like I said, and so we'll take bread out of your diet for the 30 to 90 days and see how you do. So if you're one of the people that doesn't do well, then we're going to keep it out for a little while and then maybe talk about reintroducing it later down the road. For everybody else that does fine with it, it's moderation. It's how many carbs can you consume and still feel like you're energized, feel clear headed, not gain weight. If weight is an issue, making sure that your HbA1c, your average blood sugar isn't a good level. So that's all it is for me. I'm, I'm very much in the moderation camp. I don't believe in dogmas. I don't think that we should be putting anything on the stake in terms of gluten is evil. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop. That's biolite.shop. That, that's a good perspective. And so kind of moving along these lines, I think I know the answer you'll say, but are there any diets you would have people stay away from? And or do you find the keto diet being beneficial for gut health? And then lastly, 
Do you use fasting yourself and or with patients to help promote gut health? Yeah. So any diet I would stay away from would be a diet that feels too restrictive for you, where you feel like you can't be social. You can't go out. You can't go to a party and eat. You can't go to your friend's house. That I would say is not a good diet for you. I also think that keto long-term can be potentially problematic for your gut because most people, and you can do keto a better way and a worse way, but a lot of people will reduce the amount of vegetables they're consuming on keto. I also think that starches have a beneficial role in our diet. And so I'm much more prone to say, if you feel really good on keto, make sure you're cycling and you're having periods that you're not in ketosis. And the, those are good periods. And, you know, it's not one day. And so it's all dependent on the person. If somebody is pre-diabetic or diabetic, I'm much more likely to suggest a keto diet for a little while. I never have a mainstay for people, but I think that there's a time and place for them and making sure that you don't feel overly restricted. It's really important. For fasting, we have a ton of research on fasting. I'm a huge fan of it for longevity. And like everything, you can go overboard with it. And when we look at the biohacking community, they are so great at going overboard with everything. So we always want to have a discussion of, are you starving yourself or are you fasting in a way that's going to promote longevity? Because you can do the opposite too. For gut health, I always recommend people do a 12-hour overnight fast. I think every human should be doing a 12-hour overnight fast, meaning if you have dinner at 7, you're not eating until 7 a.m. So you at least have 12 hours where nothing is coming in your body to allow for autophagy, to allow your GI system to rest. And then I think that intermittent fasting, I think prolonged fasting periods of time, you know, once in a while can be really helpful for longevity purposes when we look at, you know, all of the benefits with those pathways. The other thing about fasting is that, you know, it's not technically considered fasting, but what I recommend for my gut health patients is that they avoid snacking. And so they're having discrete meals, whether it's two meals or three meals a day, but they're having periods of time, you know, three to four hours where you're not consuming anything that has a calorie in it. You're only consuming water, you know, herbal teas, ginger tea would be great. Um, and that's because it allows your GI system to rest. A lot of the times people will come to me and they're grazing throughout the day and they never have a period of time where their stomach is empty. Your stomach needs that time to be able to move things through. It's called peristalsis, but we have something that's called the migrating motor complex that sweeps through your intestines to make sure that things are moving. So you have normal bowel movements and you don't feel like things are just sitting there. And in order for that migrating motor complex to be triggered, you need periods of fasting. So if you have breakfast, as soon as you wake up and you have like a little snack, maybe with your coffee, and then you have lunch, and then you have an afternoon, maybe a handful of nuts, because that's really healthy for you. And then you have dinner. You didn't allow enough time for that migrating motor complex to come in and start to sweep things through. So even just like small periods of fasting throughout the day, I think are essential. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that really confirms what I've been reading too, as far as fasting and the ways it can promote health in the gut. Before we move on to some light stuff, give us the breakdown of the gut brain axis. We've kind of alluded to it multiple times, but just want to dig a little deeper for the audience and, and get your expertise and perspective on it. Because the first person I ever interviewed on this podcast was Dr. Kelly Blodgett, who is a biological dentist. And he was breaking down the connection between the oral cavity and the gut and how those can have an interplay. But then of course you have the interplay of the gut brain access. So really the oral cavity could also be affecting the brain via the gut and that whole triangle, if you will. So 
would love to get your perspective on the gut brain axis as you utilize it and understand it. Yeah. And we use the word gut, right? It's just an easy word to use, but your gastrointestinal tract starts in your mouth. So it includes your oral microbiome, which is different than the microbiome in your small intestine, which is different than the microbiome in your large intestine. But this is all the gut from your mouth all the way down to your anus. You're actually, a, it's a hollow tube. So it's actually the outside of your body. It's an interesting thing to think about. It's like your skin is on the outside of your body. It's just the outside of your body, which is an interface between you and the outside world. And that's how I like to think about it is this is a first line defense system, but also a first line exposure to the outside world. We want to make sure that it's healthy. Um, Just like you don't want cracks in your skin all over the place. You want a protective layer. And so with the gut and the brain, like what is this connection? It's connected a few different ways. And so one of the connections between the gut and the brain is through the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve, I've mentioned it, but it innervates most of the GI tract all the way down to the lower part of the colon. It stems from the brain and it is our rest and digest nervous system. So it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps to make sure things move along, but it's a pathway from the gut to the brain, meaning that we can transmit signals in the gut that go up the vagus nerve and talk to the brain and vice versa, the other way. That's why people that are under periods of stress or they have PTSD, they've been stuck in a fight or flight trauma response, which is very similar to just a stress response. Those people have an activated nervous system. And we think that what happens is there becomes a kink in communication between the gut and the brain. So things go a little funky and they may have irregular bowel movements. They may have diarrhea. um, And that's because of that kink in communication. The pathway isn't working like it should. That's a whole other topic, but you want to treat that from the brainstem perspective there. But this communication can be through the vagus nerve. The other one, which I'm fascinated by, I love researching this, is the communication between the gut and the brain through the microbial ecosystem that we have. And so the gut microbiome is the host of not just bacteria, but you're looking at all microorganisms. So fungi, protozoa, viruses, even so bacteriophages, all of these things consist of our gut ecosystem. And I like to use the analogy of a forest. And so in a forest, you have all these different bird species, right? And maybe you have more of a dominant species because they migrated there first. And then you have some rarer species. Just like that, you have more dominant bacteria and then you have more rare bacteria. But it's the diversity there, meaning that it's not just one bird that takes over this whole thing. We know this in ecology, but If a species takes over something, it wreaks havoc on the ecosystem. And so there needs to be this balance. There needs to be a few of this bird, a few of these monkeys, a few of these lions. I don't know where we are with this, but (laughs) depending where you are, you need all of these different things because they play on each other. Similarly, a tree in a forest puts out oxygen and consumes CO2. And the bird takes in the oxygen and produces CO2. And they start this symbiotic relationship where they feed off of each other. Symbiosis happens in the gut as well, meaning that we consume fiber. We don't use the fiber, but the bacteria use the fiber. The bacteria produce gases. The gases talk to our human cells or the bacteria produce things like neurotransmitters or they produce things that actually can cross over the blood barrier and travel through our body through the blood-brain barrier and get to the brain and have pro or anti-inflammatory effects. 
So this is one way that our gut microbes, by producing things, can actually talk to our brain. And so we've seen things where the gut microbiome can influence BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which helps create new neuronal connections in the brain. There's also a really interesting study that looks at if you give rats inflammatory bowel disease, so you induce colitis in the rats, it can increase neuroinflammation in the brain of the rat. And, and vice versa, if you have neuroinflammation, you can also affect gut health with that. But we're seeing how something in the gut, when you induce inflammation in the gut, it's actually increasing inflammation in the brain. And so it's this communication pathway where we're able to use the substrates that are produced by the bacteria to influence our health. And the brain-gut connection is really interesting, but you also have a gut-liver connection. You have a gut everything connection. So these microbes affect all of our organ systems. Um, we've just focused on the brain more so. That was a very, very good answer. Comprehensive. Even from the beginning, just, just a reminder that your gut is actually, like you said, the outside of your body. It's just you're putting your food through the outside of your body that then is broken down so it can disseminate into your body. I mean, in a way, right? Absolutely. For, for better or worse, depending on what you're eating and depending on you know the integrity of, of your gut lining and so on and so forth. So a lot of far-reaching concepts and potentials there with, with your health, for better or for worse, like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of your health really does begin in the gut. That's a good segue, especially the neuroinflammation of the brain, how it can affect the gut, vice versa. What are your experiences with light and improving gut health or otherwise, whether it's sunlight red light therapy or otherwise. Yeah. You mentioned something when we were talking that made me think of this, but with the mindfulness piece. And so I I use your bio light, the one that you have back there in the corner, the little guy. And yeah. Yeah. When I put that one, like if I have that in the morning near my face and I'm closing my eyes, having that, because there's some warmth that comes in there, right? There's a sense of well-being and it helps me get into a mindful state too. And so I just wanted to mention that because there's other benefits. That actually doesn't have to do necessarily with the red light. I'm guessing maybe there's some stuff in there, but any process that is going to drop you into a mindful state where you're present and you're in the now is going to improve your gut health. It's going to drop you into that parasympathetic. It's going to drop you into what is going on right here, right now, past future don't matter. So I'm a huge fan of using BioLite in terms of dropping me in and just saying, this is the time where you're going to chill out and you're going to focus on just you right now and let things dissolve. In terms of otherwise, I've used the red light therapy for muscle soreness too. So that's one thing. I'm a big advocate of exercise. I love lifting weights. And so that's been really great for my muscles. And then for other light, sunlight. I mean, sunlight is huge. There was an interesting thing I was reading where potentially part of the benefits of red light may be the benefits that you also get from the sun. Like I'm looking at right now, it's gray. Like we don't always have access to the sun. When we do have access to the sun, I think most of us are not getting enough sunlight exposure. So with the pandemic, I'm testing everybody's vitamin D levels. When I get a vitamin D that's at a 15, which is very low, so 30 is the cutoff for most labs, which is too low as well. But when I get a really low vitamin D level, I'm not saying, okay, let's put you on vitamin D. 
I'm saying that as well sometimes, but I'm, I'm more suggesting you need to get outside more. If you have a vitamin D deficiency, you have a sunlight deficiency. And vitamin D is only one part of sunlight exposure because we know that light exposure in general, whether it's red light or other, has benefits to our health. And so this is always a discussion that I have with people, but when people get outside exposed to light more, they feel better. And it has to do with mental health. It has to do with our circadian rhythm. It has to do with inflammation modulation, all of which I'm sure you can enlighten us on the red light too. Your initial response about using red light in the morning to kind of get you into a more mindful state couldn't be more apropos because I don't know if you know, Mary, BioLight, we conducted research with our own devices this past summer with BioStrap Labs. And it initially started as, as a sleep study to see how red light therapy, you know, full body red light therapy would affect sleep. And while we got near statistically significant results with sleep, we did get statistically significant results with reducing stress and driving up your HRV, thus tapping into your parasympathetic nervous system. So that was almost a perfect explanation of the results we got with that study, but you were just feeling it intuitively. So red light therapy is a very good adjunct for reducing stress, anxiety, and getting into that parasympathetic state. So that's pretty cool. You mentioned that without even really knowing, at least I don't think you knew that we did that study. There are several studies showing the impact on your health by using red light therapy directly on your gut. And so, of course, there's many connections that you can reach by treating the gut, such as the brain. And so the most recent study, I'll just do that one from, from March of 2021, it's using red light therapy by targeting the gut to improve senile dementia in an animal model. And so a lot of these studies, they're done in animals first and then continued if there's positive results with human clinical trials. But this one, they used photobiomodulation that was performed on the abdomen of mice. And they used two different forms of red light, 630 nanometer, 730, and then one form of near-infrared at 850 for eight weeks. And the results were that they reduced amyloidosis and tau phosphorylation. So amyloid plaque commonly found in the brain, um, tau phosphorylation correlation means you're actually having like pruning of the synapses. So you're losing connections in your brain. So they were able to reduce both of those processes in the hippocampus in the mice when they were doing the gut flora targeted photobiomodulation. And so the conclusion of the study was that their data indicates that gut flora targeted photobiomodulation regulates the diversity of intestinal flora, which may improve damage caused by Alzheimer's disease. Gut flora targeted photobiomodulation has the potential to be a non-invasive microflora regulation method for Alzheimer's disease patients. I mean, that's just a small snippet of the potential with red light therapy and helping out with the brain. We do know there's other potential with treating the gut for stress, anxiety, depression. And so while with red light therapy, you can treat the brain directly, you could have a little more comprehensive treatment by also treating the gut. And then to Mary's point with getting sunshine, for those who have access to it, exposing your belly to the sunshine so that you're getting that full spectrum sunlight, which does include red and near infrared light, you could possibly and likely be helping the gut health by getting those energy frequencies from the light. So pretty interesting stuff, uh, Mary. And I think the future is as time goes on with photobiomodulation research, we're going to see more and more potential implications for treating the gut with, with red and near infrared light. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, the study that you mentioned, they talked about diversity in there. So it would be interesting to see like, what was the shift in diversity? Was it an increase in diversity? Was it a just things changed in terms of different species increased and decreased more like a dysbiotic model, but really diversity is one of the biggest things with gut health. So I'm not surprised that anything that's going to improve diversity is likely going to improve your gut and your brain. Yep. And along with red light therapy, pretty much every time you're using it, you're helping drive down inflammation. So if you have an inflammatory situation in your gut, sure, that's going to help. And yeah, to your point, the other couple of articles as well, which I can cite in the notes for this podcast, like you were saying, it did show that they were able to increase the good bacteria, drive down the bad bacteria. So kind of get that, restore that balance from a dysbiotic state. So yeah, pretty interesting stuff. And I'm excited to see where that goes with light specifically, but yeah, Dr. Mary, anything else that you want to talk about with the audience that you haven't already, I guess, specifically, if there's one thing that the audience could start today to start optimizing their gut health or begin their gut health journey, and you haven't mentioned it yet, what would it be? I'll say increase the amount of joy you experience on a daily basis. So I haven't mentioned that, but it gets back to the mental health piece, but your whole neurobiology and endocrine system and the hormones that you produce, I'm saying it changes when you're in a state of experiencing joy and it can really help to re-regulate your nervous system. And that is going to help your gut health too. So if you don't know where to start, just see what brings you joy throughout the day and do more of that. Really simple. I like that. Be happy, have a happy gut. Lastly, Mary, give us a breakdown of your gut health course that you have. What, What does that entail and how can people access it? Absolutely. So I partnered up with a company called One Commune, and they have a platform that is all virtual courses. And so we did a 10-day gut health course where I took all of my knowledge on the gut, the gut microbiome, everything GI related, and threw it into a course. Um, So it's really like a brain dump of everything that I have clinically, um, as well as research-wise. And the point of this was just to get it to more people. So not everybody can work with a functional medicine doctor one-on-one. Not everybody, you know, is local as well. And so it goes through the main conditions of GI health in terms of it goes through IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, reflux. Um, We talk about constipation. We talk about diarrhea. We talk about probiotics. We even get into some weird topics, which I love weird stuff. We talk about helminthic therapy, which is worm therapy, like actually using worms in a therapeutic setting. Um, We talk about fecal microbiota transplantation, poop transplants. So we talk about how your hormones influence your gut health. So we talk about all of these things. It's really comprehensive. I spent a ton of time creating it. (laughs) So you get a lot. I believe it. Yeah. And so that's through one commune. So you can go to their platform and we can throw it in the show notes too, in terms of, I believe you can get a free week if you use the link um, and just check it out. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. All these links for Dr. Mary, her, her gut course and, and other websites we'll have in the, in the podcast description in the podcast notes. So yeah, go check that out because I'm sure what we discussed here, even in the quick hour was just the tip of the iceberg compared to what that course has to offer. So everyone go check that out. Dr. Mary, again, appreciate your time with your busy schedule. And the last question would be, are you still taking patients? So if people in the audience are curious or interested in working with you, could they? Yeah, I currently have a wait list. So I'm currently not accepting new patients myself, but I created Modern Med, which is the virtual telehealth company. 
which we're now in person as well in Sherman Oaks. Um, and so we have two other doctors on our team who have my same knowledge base and gut health. And so they're accepting new patients currently. If you just want to work with me, you can get on my wait list and I'll be accepting new patients in the future. Just don't know when that is. But Dr. Minahan, Dr. Williams are amazing. I send my family to them. So they're great with GI conditions as well. Okay. That's great to know. Yeah. We'll have all that information, whether if it's you want to work directly with Dr. Mary or check out that course, we'll have that information in the podcast notes. So um, again, Dr. Mary, appreciate your time with your busy schedule kicking off this January with some gut health information on this podcast episode. So appreciate your time. For everyone listening, this has been Dr. Mary Pardee, Dr. Mike Belkowski, signing off of the Red Light Report. Everybody have a fantastic week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.